0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Arts and Letters. Arts and Letters is one of the many podcast channels on the New Books Network, and I'm Pallavis Oshi, the host of the channel. Today I'm delighted to be hosting Liliane Milgrom. She is an internationally acclaimed artist and author. She was born in Paris, grew up in Australia lived in Israel, and now lives in the United States in the greater Washington, D.C. area. She exhibits her artwork in regional and international galleries and museums. Her artwork can be found in both private and institutional collections. Her articles have appeared in publications such as the Huffington Post, Bonjour Paris, Inspirel, Ceramics Monthly, and Daily Art Magazine, and her essay, Je Suis Femme, appears in the Dans le Ventre des Femmes anthology. In 2011, she became the first artist authorized by the Musée d'Orsay in Paris to copy Gustave Courbet's infamous painting, L'Origine du Monde, The Origin of the World. Following her stint as a copiste, she spent nearly a decade researching and writing her debut of a novel, L'Origine, The Secret Life of the World's Most Erotic Masterpiece. L'Origine has snapped up no less than six literary awards, including Publishers Weekly 2021 Selfies Book Award for Best Adult Fiction and has been re-released as a second edition by Girl Friday Books. So she is here with us today to speak about the book and so much more. It's a real pleasure to have you here, Lilian. Welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thanks so much, Palavi. It's a pleasure to be here, and that was a wonderful introduction. Couldn't have said it better myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, so just to kick off the conversation, um, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about your background. I mean, you obviously have a very international background, and I'm I'm very curious to know how that impacted the book or your life as an artist in general and and what brought you back to Paris in 2011 at the start of the book.
1: Well, you're absolutely right in that I have a very mixed international background and I think that's reflected in my sort of strange accent, <laughs> but... Um, what what i've noticed like over the years is even though i've lived on many different continents for a long period of time i was born in paris as you mentioned and i think it's just in your dna even though i left when i was six i have been back several times and there's just something that i feel a pull towards france and paris in particular and it's really hard to describe but it's like when i when i arrive there it's like the smells and the sights and everything is just familiar deep in my bones. <laughs> so uh, why I returned to Paris at that particular time is I was doing a an artist residency. I have done several artist residencies in France. This one was in Paris, and I didn't have, I was very fortunate to have six weeks there, sort of just to follow my creative muse. And I didn't really have a set... Um, you know, goal or, or project that I wanted to do. But I decided to go back to Paris to do this residency because it was a time of self-exploration. And I thought, if I want to do that, if I want to really explore my own sexuality as a woman of a certain age, there's no better place than Paris, I believed. And that's how I, I went back to Paris at that particular time and I had my serendipitous encounter with Gustave Courbet's L'Origine du Monde.
0: Absolutely. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking us directly to the start of the book. It's <laughs> it's, it's so wonderful. And, and you certainly found plenty to do in the <laughs> Musée d'Orsay. So, I um, certainly did. <laughs> amazing. So I, I was just wondering, you know, um, if you could talk to us a little bit about the painting itself. Um I mean I'm sure that many of us would be already familiar with the painting or Gustave Courbet and might have seen it in, in person perhaps or have must have read about it. But it's it's a pretty special painting, isn't it? It's it's quite infamous <laughs> with a with quite a an interesting history.
1: Well, it is an infamous painting, and that sort of uh, works to its its advantage and disadvantage. I think that its shock value is what makes it famous. Uh, in case there are any listeners out there who really don't know this painting, it's very famous in France and amongst art aficionados, but a lot of people, at least in the United States, are not familiar with this painting, and it's basically a very beautifully rendered, realistic portrait of a woman's genitals. That's what it is. There's no arms, no legs, no head. It's just that that private body part, which is really quite shocking when you see it in a museum. And even though I was sort of familiar with it, because I am an artist and I know Gustave Courbet not that well at the time, I, I was still sort of stunned seeing this painting there in a, in a museum. You don't expect that. When you think about it, all these famous paintings, you know, the classicist paintings uh, through the ages, they never show that, uh, that sort of perspective of a woman's genitals without a, a fig leaf or a hand or a fabric covering that. It was, it's really a taboo subject. But on the other hand, you stand in front of this painting and it's not large. It's, uh, it's just a little bit uh, smaller than life size and just that aspect of a woman... It's just so beautifully painted. Gustave Courbet is known for painting flesh. It really, it scintillates. It's, it's creamy. It's beautiful. So if you can get over the shock and, and look at it as a painting itself, it's gorgeous. And uh, as we'll talk about later, I was uh, delighted to find out that it has the most incredible history
0: amazing it's 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 really great to hear about how you saw the painting when you first encountered it and 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 it's it's i understand that you know uh when you first come across a painting such as l'origine it 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 might shock you so much that you might not be able to see what's beyond it and and i think you just described it beautifully
1: I think you've got a very good point there because I think it was uh, actually John Updike of all people who uh, described it as a Rorschach because if you it's, it's the painting is a blend of fascination aversion liberation embarrassment so it depends how you see it you can either see it as empowering and liberating or you could see it as pornographic and exploitative. So it's one of those paintings that is really up for interpretation depending on what you, the viewer, bring to it, right? And so if you're standing there for a while in the museum next to this painting and you see these hordes of visitors who come to see it because it is, as you said, so infamous, you will, you will experience and hear the entire gamut of, of uh, reaction to this painting, because it's not something you expect to see, and it's usually something so private, and here you are seeing it
0: in a most public space. Absolutely. So this brings me to my next question, in fact. So I assume that when you, when you got the permission to, I'm not going to say copy, just recreate the painting, um, I assume that the museum was open to the public, and you were just there in front of the painting, recreating it. And I just wonder, how, how was it like for you to paint with an audience? <laughs> it, it's almost a like a question. public engagement project, you know? Um,
1: <laughs> very well, very, very good question. And I'd like to backtrack a bit in case, you know, you've got readers out there who don't know how come you know, you know the story of my Copiste experience. It's because the first part of my book, L'Origine, uh, the prologue is autobiographical and it describes, like I said, my first encounter with this painting and how it absolutely bewitched me and I was able, through a series of, you know, chutzpah as they say, and um, my French, <laughs> my French that I was very uh, grateful to have, to talk my way into being the first uh, copyist authorized by the museum to paint that painting in situ. Now, as you say, it's not a painting that you—it's not a landscape or, or you know, a portrait of somebody. So even when I was asking for permission, the head of the Bureau of Copiste, she even looked at me and said, do you know what you're getting into? And I don't think I really did, to be honest, palavi because I just was so bewitched. And I said, there's something here for me. I don't know what it is yet, but I need to get closer to this painting. I need to get inside, inside it and understand it and, and feel it. And so it was totally out of my comfort zone. When I painted home, I don't even like my, my husband to see what, when I'm sort of like in the middle of a painting. So to have hundreds of people walk by and give you their opinions, people are not shy <laughs> about saying, oh, that's wrong or that doesn't look the right, you know? and you've not finished the painting and you, it's, it's very daunting. And the first day, which I describe um, in my prologue, I was just, I wanted to fall through a hole in the ground. I thought, what have I done? I'm so embarrassed. People are looking at me, looking at this, uh, you know, these these genitals, and they're sort of like looking at me and saying, what is she doing and why is she doing it? But as I went through the six weeks of being a copiste, I gained, you know, a lot of confidence, and I found out that it was actually what I was doing was more of a performance piece than anything else. Exactly. Amazing. Uh-huh.
0: I, I, I just wonder, you know, um, let's go back a little bit. I, I and Now this might seem like a simple question, but with a complicated answer. So I wonder what inspired you to copy it in the first place. I mean, was it the gaze, the question of the gaze? Was it its history? Was it the artist himself?
1: Can I be totally honest and say it was none of the above? (laughs) It was um, one of these serendipitous moments in life where you're not quite sure why you're doing something, but it's like you're at a fork in the road and you just decide, I'm going to do this. I don't know why, but it will reveal itself later. And in fact, all the things that you mentioned did reveal themselves, in fact, later, It was something that I experienced uh, later on as the female gaze versus the male gaze and myself becoming the object of the gaze as its copyist and me gazing at the painting. And that there was this entire circular, really interesting dialogue going on between the painting, myself, and the viewers in the museum. But the reason when I look back at it, is simply because I was totally bewitched. I went all around the painting, all around the museum, and I couldn't get this painting out of my head. I just thought, here is a painting that has broken taboos of centuries, and it speaks to a woman, and its title, L'origine du monde, the origin of the world, paired with this very sort of shocking, unexpected uh, image. It just meant so much to me. I'm, I wasn't sure of what Courbet's original intentions were, but to me, it spoke as as an artist putting a woman on a pedestal, her powers and her beauty. So that is what really inspired me. And it's only later that I delved into its incredible history and that I found out a lot more about the phenomenal artist
0: Gustave Courbet. Absolutely, I and. You know when you you know because we, we just talked about the moment when you realized that you had to you simply had to you know recreate the painting um i assume that the moment when you decided to to recreate the painting and the moment you decided to write about it were, were different right okay so um how did that happen how did you when did you decide that you know i want to take this forward and kind of transfer, transform it into another piece of art, apart right. from the copy.
1: <laughs> Again, um, I guess I work more, I, I think you've probably figured that out by now that I, <laughs> I work a lot on instinct and I'm not like a huge planner. Things just sort of happen to me and I I just follow my gut. So like the painting, as time went on in the museum, I became more and more involved with the painting. I identified with the painting. The painting was me and I was the painting by the end of it all. I just had such a personal, intimate relationship and dialogue with this painting that when I went home and I finished the the, the entire copyist experience, And the head of the Bureau of copyists was delighted. She said she didn't know what quite to expect, but I did a beautiful copy. And I came home and I realized that the entire experience of exposing myself as well was life-changing. So I got home and it wasn't like, okay, what's next? I couldn't quite divorce myself from these incredible six weeks I had had. So I thought, well... Now is the time when I have some time to look even deeper into the painting and the artist, and I got my hands on a huge, fat, seven hundred page compendium oh. <laughs> of the letters of Gustave Courbet, which I read three times. And you, as an academic, must must understand this. Absolutely, I was so amazed by his character. I, I realized that his legacy was not only his art, but it was his activism and it was his revolutionary stance. That, that's also part of his legacy. And he was a real character. And actually, I wrote a, a list of, uh, of uh, what should I call it, adjectives that, that I have in front of me as I was reading, and, and I'll read them out because they're just so funny. He was charming, belligerent, egotistical, driven charismatic, bold, obnoxious, visionary, stubborn, self-pitying, principled, fiery, and rebellious. (laughs) So that was Gustave Courbet. So I got hold of that and I said, wow, 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 wow. And at first, uh, it wasn't like a, a very linear adventure on my writing adventures it started off I thought well I would love to expose uh, English speaking readers to this incredible artist he had such a fantastic fascinating life and he did so much in the uh, for art and for artists in the future so I started reading an enormous amount lots and lots of books in French and of course lots of research on on the internet and I realized that what I wanted to really write about was the painting's adventures, because let's say I wrote about Gustave Courbet. What happens when he passes away? What happens to the painting? The painting lives on. So I thought, all right, I need to write about the painting's adventures and the collector's hands through which it passed over centuries and continents, and so i started writing like that and and uh, it took me a good 10 years
0: <laughs> it's, it's you know your your research really shows through in the in the pages that you've written and and i, I was also this this brings me to the next question um it's 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 about the genre of the book right i mean it's it's kind of a memoir in part historical fiction, there are parts of it that are completely fictionalized. And I just wondered how you weave them together and and which parts of the painting's journey were actually fictionalized and which parts were kind of standard, you know, uh, real history. Right.
1: It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. It was really difficult. And I'm glad you brought up the whole genre question because I got a lot of pushback. After I had finished read, uh, writing the book, I got pushback from agents and publishers saying it was uh, a hybrid genre. You know, like you say, memoir or personal essayist, uh, author fiction plus historical fiction. And they wanted me to change the way I approached it because it wasn't fitting neatly into a genre box. And I'm so glad I stuck to my guns, which is a little bit of hubris because it was my debut novel. But what I felt was, how can I connect with a contemporary reader? How can I make them interested in a 19th century painting? I wanted to impose my experience and my viewpoint into this, first of all, so that they would be the reader would be invested in the painting by the time that I would, uh, you know, by the time that they would get into the historical part, they would be invested to know more about the painting because of my adventures with it. And then I was thinking, okay, a lot of questions are about, like, how much is fictional, how much is historical, as far as the painting's own journey. And I would have to say I really... Did not have to embellish a lot because most of it is true, and that's what just tickled me. I just said, "I can't believe this. This happened to this painting, or that it fell into such and such a hand, because it's so fascinating." So there's only really, I would say, maybe a, a you know, fifteen percent where I uh, where I had to sort of embellish because th- the painting's uh, trail went cold, and I had to figure out. What happened to it in that space of time?
0: Absolutely. I, I'm just wondering, you know, when uh, you were researching uh, for the book, you, you've written quite a bit about Gorbey himself. And I wondered, you know, what was the process that you went through to kind of connect with the artist? Because uh, a few minutes ago you mentioned, you know, that I am the painting and the painting is me. So I, I wonder how the 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 research materials that you came across you know through the last decade uh, how did those kind of impact the book?
1: Hmm, that's a good question because I the hardest one of the hardest uh, scenes to write in the book was his the moment he decides to paint this and during the painting of this and that's where my sort of where I put on my artist hat where that helped me because i was trying to if i couldn't get that right if i couldn't get into his shoes and into his head and figure out those moments when he wanted to paint that, why he wanted to paint that, how he felt painting that, the, the the different the different emotions that he went through painting that. Because I know as an artist, you go through all that. You think you're going to do a painting and then it takes you somewhere else. So my research was all well and good. But as far as like how it impacted me, I had to put on my artist hat to really... Find the sensory and the sensual aspects of his actual painting. I don't know if that's answered the question, but I sort of, I, I needed to tap into all different parts of myself as well as the research in order to write a believable book.
0: Oh no, absolutely! I think that that's uh, what makes the book interesting. You know, the, all these interwoven connections and and different yeah. parts of you as a researcher, as an artist. As 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 a painter, you know they, they all kind of come together. Uh, and I in just the book.
1: interject here because there was something I only realized about coming together. I only realized like way later on after after publishing the book that it it connected all my loves, which is history, art, and writing. And I realized, wow, th- that's why I stuck to it for ten years because it was so much tapping into all my loves, but also. I never, ever was um, really interested in in copying one of the masters, even though it's a time-honored tradition, how artists learned to paint and they studied the masters. And what I found out in my research is that Courbet himself, he was such a, a renegade, he refused to go to the Académie des Arts the Academy of Art, and he just said, no, I'm not going to be taught by these old-fashioned professors. He called them, you know, old farts, excuse me. And <laughs> his words, not mine. And, uh, and uh, he said he, he decided to, to spend most of his time in Paris. He came from Ornon, which is a little village. Uh, he decided to use most of his time to copy the masters, and he particularly liked the Spanish uh, and Portuguese, because they painted more realistic portraits of everyday life. But then I realized when I was doing the copying, and after I found out more about his experiences in Paris and how he learned to paint, and I felt, oh, I'm I'm now part of this whole tradition. And now I'm copying, and now I understand him even more. It's just like so many intersections, as you mentioned before.
0: Absolutely. it's It's interesting, you know, how... Um. You said that Courbet and his painting impacted you, but you also impacted the painting in some ways, you know, through your writing. And and it's it's. I mean, I just have to use this word here. I'm sorry, but it's amazing to see how your encounter with L'Origine gave birth, if I may. Fantastic! <laughs> <laughs> <You, laughs> I just have to. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> to to not one but but three works of art, if I'm not, not wrong. So first your recreation of the painting itself, then the mm-hmm. book, and yes, then yes. the art installation.
1: Yes, Could I you never talk? imagined, I never imagined that, you know, coming <laughs> across this painting would sort of uh, lay down the groundwork for the trajectory of the next 10 or 15 years and it's been an incredible adventure just, you know, on a personal level and on an artistic and creative level. Even though I wrote, uh, you know, articles on the arts before writing this novel, I never thought to myself, oh, I want to be a novelist. It it, it it didn't work that way. Some Some writers, you know, they dream of writing a novel. In my case, I just was fixated on the subject and obsessed with getting out the word about this painting, but more from a point of view, Pallavi, of, of expressing, is trying to show the painting in terms of uh, its context, because I think the painting has been vilified in some ways, and uh, as, as has Corbet, because I wanted to show that he wasn't some sort of misogynistic pervert, not at all once you put it in context and you understand his motivations, you understand the times it was painted in, and you get the understanding that it was not painted for the wide public. It was a private commission. And that puts everything in a totally different light, in my opinion. And I really wanted to write about that and and give this painting a little bit of protection. I really <laughs> wanted to put
0: it under my protective wing absolutely and you know um while you were talking uh, about Courbet and the painting it it kind of shows the connection that you have to the painting and 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 the artist you know it's i, I think it's just so charming it it i can hear it in your voice and and it it, it also shows in the, in the book in the pages in in, in the words that he use in the in the way you frame your sentences you know it's, it's absolutely charming I, I I think it's just magical how you can establish a real connection with these you know historical figures through learning about how they how they how they painted the work of art how they who they were yep who they were corresponding with, where they were living at the time. And I think you've you've done a tremendous job uh, at that. Um, Thank
1: you. And you know that it's not only the artist, because the, the fascinating part also of this book is, not only do you get to know Gustave Courbet, and I hope everyone would have a tear in their eye when he passes away, but it's the provenance of the painting. Like, what happens to a painting? how does it get from hand to hand and in this particular case the painting was so scandalous that it was kept hidden for 150 years so that's even more fascinating what comes out of that and who who were the collectors and what were their motivations for collecting and how did they how did they keep the painting And I'm fascinated when I hear from readers about who their favorite collector was or what they thought of various collectors. So I'm going to ask
0: you, did you have a favorite collector? Oh, I I absolutely did. And I was actually going to ask you about, you know, if you could give us a little bit, a tidbit, you know, about about the collectors. The one that, that you would like to talk about, because I... Would just go on for about half an hour. <laughs> if, if I if I start talking about the book and the particular you know sections of it that I that I absolutely loved.
1: <laughs> well, uh, let's start at the beginning. I'm not going to give anything away, but I'll give a very <laughs> very brief uh, chronological uh, idea of who. So the as I mentioned before, it was a private commission. By a very, very interesting, exotic gentleman, Khalil Bey, mm-hmm. who was okay. um, a Absolutely. Turkish diplomat. Yes, he was fantastic, <laughs> Khalil Bey. He was in Paris. He was a Turkish diplomat. And he was very cosmopolitan. And he also had a penchant for erotic art. And uh, I describe it. I think the book starts like that, yes, where he comes to Courbet's painting, uh, Courbet's studio, and he sees other paintings of Courbet's, and he just about salivates uh, seeing them all. And they're all already accounted for. So Courbet does this commission for him, a different painting, and he decides to sweeten the deal by making another little painting that he says will. Absolutely, knock his socks off. This new collector and says, You'll never have seen anything like this. So, he actually has it for quite a number of years. And he, he Halil Bey himself, is a very interesting character. Uh, so, he falls a, uh, out of grace, loses his fortune, and is forced to go back to um, Constantinople. And he takes the painting with him. And so, I describe what happens, but he can't keep the painting. So on a trip back to Paris, he unloads the painting onto the famous uh, collector Durand-Ruel, who is known for being one of the few who was a champion of the Impressionists. So most people may have heard of Durand-Ruel. And Durand-Ruel actually didn't know what to do with this painting himself because at the time Courbet was was, uh, exiled. And that's another whole story. You'll have to read the book why. (laughs) So he manages to unload the painting after many years to a sort of a hapless uh, uh, antiques dealer, Antoine de la Narde, who really didn't know what he had there. And the painting at the time was hidden behind another of Courbet's paintings so that you wouldn't see it, of course. It would not have been permissible to see that painting at the time. It was hidden behind another painting, he had it in his sort of dusty antique store for quite a number of years before finally this very eccentric metaphysicist, Louis Vial, uh, comes along and takes it. And after that, the trail goes a bit cold, but I know that his widow took it to a famous um, uh, art uh, gallery and they took it on, again, with the both paintings. And it made its way into the hands of Baron Hadvani, a, a Hungarian baron who had it through World War I and World War II. And uh, he happened to be Jewish. So you can imagine that there's an entire section of the painting's history that gets caught up uh, with the, the Nazi era and uh, the appropriation of art. Uh, finally, it gets uh, saved and it goes into the hands of Sylvia Bataille, who was famous in the 1930s as a actress in France, and the very, very famous and eccentric psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. So Absolutely. those are basically <laughs> the steps that the painting took. And each of these collectors has such interesting backstories. So that's pretty much, I don't know if I have a favorite, but I know that, I think I did like Baron Hadvani because he was also an artist and he really saw the painting for more than its uh shock value let's say.
0: Absolutely. Amazing. I I was just wondering, you know, um how do you think the 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 painting plays between this this debate um of pornography and erotica um, I'm sorry I'm not very articulate at this moment because um, you know because you were talking about the first collector and how um, each collector had different backgrounds and how they perhaps perceived the the painting in a different way how, how do you think the painting according to you plays into this debate of pornography and it's more now
1: i think like i said before that the painting has had a bit of a bad rap because of our contemporary lens that we see it through and especially the the feminist critique has been quite harsh about the painting and i beg to differ because like i say when you put a painting a work of art in context i don't think that uh courbet's message or his motivation was was to shock. He did want to break boundaries. He did want to see how far he could go. There's no doubt about that, but it was for one one collector, and he wanted to do something that had never been done before. and he did love his women. And so um, you know he 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 wasn't like exactly you know a gentleman or anything like that. I'm not going to put him on a pedestal. but i I really um take issue with uh, some of the critiques of this painting. I mean, I have read, seriously, like hate blogs about this painting. And and I feel so personal. And I always write back and I try to explain, you know, its context. And I don't know why I do that, but I just feel so protective of it. And I think that it's a matter of um, just understanding the painting. But going back to what I said right at the beginning of this interview, is that you one can see this painting according to what one brings to it. And so many women that when I was there at the museum over a period of weeks, so many women loved this painting and they they just did not see it in any sort of sexual way. But the men had different uh, ways of seeing it, but it wasn't only erotic or, or, or sexual. You know, some saw their mothers or their lovers, and others see saint or a devil. So it really is a Rorschach. And in my opinion, it's just a beautiful depiction of what a woman really looks like without any, uh, you know, screens over it and, and no waxing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely. You know, I was just going to mention um, the title of the Mm -hmm. painting, L'Origine du Monde. So that also kind of plays into a lot of roles, especially motherhood. Yes. And and how it kind of intersects with uh, eroticism again, which is again a taboo kind of, Subject: Motherhood and eroticism.
1: Right, and over the centuries, you know, it was uh, actually the church that uh, prescribed that no artist can show uh, female genitalia. I think that uh, you know, over the centuries, as we know now, being in in, in our modern era, uh, men, I think, were were rather afraid of a woman's power, and her power derives a lot of from the. Point of view, and from the fact that she can actually produce life, she she actually gives birth, as you mentioned before. So um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just I think I've lost the track. <laughs> what did you ask me?
0: <laughs> no, I, I was just you know I just asked you about kind of the intersection between eroticism and motherhood.
1: Right, right, right. <laughs> I certainly don't see this as pornographic. No way, no way. But I mean, I also you know when you consider the context going back to context again the uh, this was a period of time when he painted it in 1866 that um, not long before then several years before then photography had started to become very popular and there were those um, I would say erotic or I, I guess at the time they were considered rather pornographic those Postcards, those those photographic postcards of women Absolutely. that I'm sure you uh-huh. come across. So I'm sure that that also influenced uh, Courbet, in my opinion, because I know that he had a collection of those postcards, and I, you know, perhaps that with the cropping, they say that with the cropping that he could have been influenced by cropping done, you know, photographically, and he was experimenting in that way as well. So one, one there's so many different aspects, but I personally, you asked for my personal opinion, definitely not pornographic, but very sensual.
0: <laughs> Amazing, perfect. Um, because we were talking about context um, and how kind of the painting was perceived throughout the years, um, I wonder how do you see it in, in the present context? How do you see kind of looking back or bringing it back rather to the present time? You know, there's a lot to be
1: said about when an artist, you know, what sort of legacy does, does an artwork have? And not all artworks, that's for sure, stand the test of time. So what, what is it that makes an, an, an artwork, a particular artwork, stand the test of time? I think it's a combination of aesthetics and sort of universal identification, a relevance to a modern time or a different period. And I think with what's going on, especially here in the States, with this sort of tug of war over women's bodies, I think that this painting is more relevant than ever. And it continues to be in the news. It continues to spark debate. And I think that that is what makes it very, very relevant. It's not just any painting. This is a painting that is showing a woman as she is unapologetically totally unapologetically and in fact putting it on a bit of a pedestal and showing its beauty through the painting and i believe that it should be it get, it would give women pride i mean it's certainly i felt very proud of being a woman by the time i finished painting the copy i was totally i i had gained self-confidence not only as an artist but as a woman. Absolutely.
0: And, you know, I, I just wondered, I, after reading the book, and uh, after looking at the painting myself for for quite a while, <laughs> for quite a while, you know, I was trying to kind of understand how I could, in my personal opinion, interpret the painting and relate it, link it back to your book. And uh, there are it's true that there are so many, many interpretations uh, possible and um, you kind of bring that whole complexity out of the book. And it's, it's just wonderful to read. I couldn't put it down. I I just read it in two days and then read it again. So, (laughs) so it's, it's wonderfully written. And like I said, you know, you it kind of brings out this combination. That's also a part of your personality of, of a researcher of, a part historian, part kind of artist, and it all comes along beautifully uh, in the book. Um, so uh, now that we're running short on time, <laughs> um, I would have just one question for you. It's pretty much our standard question here. Um, what are you working on next? good question.
1: Uh, you know, I first of all, I never imagined, A, that the book would take me 10 years, B, that the promotion and, and sort of the life after publication would take me another nine months to a year to sort of like, you know, promote it and get people to read it and stuff like that. But in the meantime, I still want to continue creatively. So I am about a third of the way through my second novel. And it is not about a work of art, but it is definitely historical fiction because I love history and I love researching. And it also takes place mainly in France. And it's about one particular woman who straddles the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. And she was quite a woman with quite a um, risque Uh, background I would say so it's a little bit similar in that respect but I'm also painting a lot I'm doing a whole new series of works for um, a possible show coming up so yes I'm busy (laughs) oh
0: I am so intrigued (laughs) and I'm sure our listeners are too and we and we really hope that you come back here on New Books Network and talk to us about your next next book and your projects
1: Thank you. I loved your questions. They were they were really challenging. Thank you.
0: <laughs> it was a it was an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And and I hope to see you soon. Yes. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. And thanks for listening, everybody. Read the book and let me know what you think. <laughs>